Monday, September 7th, 2020. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. This is barely because it's Friday, but this is the week of 9-11. Just like last year when we had very impactful stories for our 9-11 episode, and I encourage you to go back and, and listen to them. Most notably, we had John Baxter, who is an Air Force veteran and has been the flight surgeon for multiple Secretary of Defenses. He was in uniform on September 11th, 2001 in the Pentagon. But just like last year, just like John, this year we have some very, very impactful stories. For my generation, this is a somber week because almost every one of us can remember events vividly from September 11th, 2001. Whether it was like myself, we were in high school and watching the television with with our teachers. In college, in ROTC, like some of our previous guests, we're already in the military and serving. Or maybe you were a spouse. Maybe you were the child of a service member. Or maybe you're not and will never be in the military at all. Maybe you're a first responder. If you were alive to be aware of current events at that time, you remember that day. Like I've said before, it's our generation's Pearl Harbor. And that one event has had lasting effects in our nation's military and foreign policy. All the way up till today. Many, many lives beyond just the event have been altered and unfortunately extinguished due to what happened on September 11th, 2001. Reason enough to never forget those events and the implications that it laid to bear. No reviews, no ratings. Uh, We'll get to that next week. This week, just like we did last year, we're going to focus on the stories of September 11th, 2001. Our guest this week was at the Pentagon on that fateful day. And for days after, establishing a communications mobility center as the director and client executive of DOD Mobility for AT&T. He is also an Army Reserve and Green Beret veteran who deployed many times after September 11th. So without further ado, here is Army veteran Tony Tamerario. Enjoy. So, uh, Tony, we're going to start this interview with the question that we ask every veteran that comes on board in the battle. Uh, where and when did you decide to join the service? Uh, well, I was at a very young age. I knew what I wanted to do. I, I had the benefit of growing up a few miles outside of Washington, D.C., but right on the Potomac River. Literally, my, my backyard had a 50-foot cliff on it. So uh, I spent most of my youth uh, growing up with my friends. Uh, in the Potomac, on the Potomac, around the Potomac, and the streams and, and marshland and wetlands around that area. So yeah. I loved it. And growing up, the greatest job in the world to have would be in the United States Army. And I also had the benefit of having two World War II uh, combat veterans as parents. Um, Interesting. And, uh, and they, uh, I was born late in their lives. Um, but uh they raised me. Um, they were both in the Navy, and uh, and uh, they raised me with great respect for the military, and that's what I wanted to do. Very good, very good. Um, so, what year did you join, Tony? Did you join the service? Nineteen ninety three. Ninety three. Former Green Beret. Uh, talk about some of the places you've been. Uh, some of the mission objectives that you that you did in the nineties, early two thousands. 2000s? I had the honor of serving our country um, 
uh, in Afghanistan. And um, I really, I really enjoyed that country as well. Uh, I got to see some, some of the, the great things that that country had to offer. Uh, I also saw some of the darker things, but it's a, it's a beautiful country and, and the people, the culture there is, is unique, unique uh, in this world. What was, uh, what was your most memorable moment in that country? <laughs> That's a tough one to answer. Um, I, I remember, uh, there's a lot of things that I remember. I remember the beauty of the country mostly. Um, and, uh, you know, the mountains are incredible. The views are incredible. The stars at night are emblematic of the, of the, of the American flag, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about today. Um, yeah. but the, uh, uh, you know, I can remember being, you know, watching the sunrise, uh, missions overlooking, uh, villages that we could see the village coming to life in the morning, uh, women gathering water, um, just, just amazing images. Got you. Um, while you were in either give me a, a best friend or your greatest mentor. While I was in the service, best friend or greatest mentor, um, I, I, I had, I mean, I was on, on a, on a team and we were all very good friends and, and those were, um, really my my inspiration for a long for a long time because once you're on a team you're you're lucky if you can stay on one for a long time and i was and um all of those teammates that i had and memories that we shared uh as part of that brotherhood um just remain firm with me now so i would answer your question with my team members definitely my team members got you uh any names you want to you want to just share you can just go with first names if you want I will uh, tell you that I had a team member that uh, I will I will share with you, um, and then the reason that I joined the Carry the Load organization and who I carry the load for, starting first class William Brian Wood. Mm. He was our he was our team medic, and he uh, he did anything for everybody. He was a team medic. He always was there to help uh, when he was uh, on our. Um, Ford operating base in our in our camp. He ran around the FOB making friends with everybody, um, getting to know everybody and doing trading, bartering uh, for things that the team needed, always bringing things back to us that, that we just had to have in his mind. Mm. He trained us too. He's, he was a former Marine um, and joined uh, Special Forces uh, after his career uh, in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps sniper. Oh, wow. Um, so he trained us uh, and a Blackwater instructor when Blackwater was known as Blackwater. Um, and uh, so he trained us on tactics, um, techniques, procedures, medical, way they way behind the gun. He was willing to train anyone about weaponry and, and especially the long gun. And um, he really was someone who squeezed the, the marrow out of life. Mm. And um, the, 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 the Brian Wood story is 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 a great one. He doesn't sound like your typical medic or corpsman. You know? No, <laughs> like there was a, there's a lot of training behind him. Yeah, that's right. I'm looking at my finger right now. He stitched me up. I still have the scars. He was uh, his his spirit passed on the field of battle uh, in my arms. So I I carry him with me in in the, in the in memory physically and then in my heart all the time. Wow. It's outstanding. Um, you mentioned carry the load. I, I walked, uh, about a year ago, you know, the year before we had COVID talk to me about carry the load. Um, what it means to you. Sure. Yes. Uh, it was an honor to be asked to be an ambassador for the carry load carry the load organization. Uh, and I'm a member of 18 T's veterans, veterans organization as well. Uh, and I'm proud of our partnership with AT&T and, and the Carry the Load organization. One of the things that, that struck me most about uh, Carry the Load was a logo of the soldier buddy carrying his, his fallen comrade, and uh, you know, and the heavy the, heavy, the images of the heavy ruck. And uh, as mm -hmm. retired Army Airborne Infantry and, and, and Special Forces, uh, you and I both know we spent a lot of time with a ruck on our back. Um, yeah. And, uh, and having to honor, having the honor to serve our country in Afghanistan um, 
we, we carried our, our fallen on and off the field of battle after the battle and and with us every day you know some some of the some of the great things that Harry Lode has done they raised 25.2 million dollars since uh, 2011 to raise awareness for uh, those who sacrifice for us and educate our nation's youth about service and sacrifice and, and one of those programs that it appealed to me the most uh, was carry the flag carry the flag program yeah, Stephen Holly and Todd Boating, they, uh, they've both been guests here on, on, on uh, Born the Battle. And, uh, you know, because NCA is a partner with Carry the Load as well. And part of the part of the walks that they do every, you know, every May usually is usually through uh, national cemeteries. That's usually a main part of the uh, and that's where all, a lot of the rallies are. Um, so, yeah, if anybody wants to check that out, that's uh, back in the archives, back in episodes 143 and 161. Um, uh, real quick, what, when did you get out? I retired uh, in in 2014 from the army. In 2014, gotcha, gotcha. Now you're now the uh, AT and T director, client executive for AT and T Mobile's IoT operations team uh, that supports the public sector, and you're also a member of the AT and T Veterans Group. Uh, just like government, Tony, that's that's a long title. <laughs> I, 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 think the, <laughs> I think the easiest way to, to remember it is just I'm, I'm a director, client executive for AT and T Government Solutions. Very good. Um, what what does that mean? Um, I am a sales leader. I work in a sales organization, and um, I have I had the benefit of, of starting my career in Washington D.C. Um, that was the, the uh, second cellular market to open in the United States, and I was in a sales position. I was lucky enough uh, to be able to contribute to the uh, consumer, corporate, and government sales distribution models. Uh, in the mid to late 1990s for then singular and now AT&T. Um, but that's, that is, um, that's what I, that's what I do now. I was in a sales role and then uh, uh, was deployed a lot and then went back into a sales role after I, or I came out and I'm in an operations role right now. Gotcha. So are you, are you, are you in a reserve unit? Were you were you were you active at some point? I was in the reserves. I've I've been in the reserves my career, um, my entire career, uh, except for the times that I was active. Gotcha. And I was that's on active duty on, on um, during deployments and training. I was wondering because you know this is the nine eleven episode of Born the Battle, um, and you have a story about nine eleven, but you also talked about being in in the service from like ninety three to twenty fourteen. So I was just kind of kind of curious. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of fun you mentioned it because it, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense, but it, you put it in perspective. Uh, I had two careers and lived two lifetimes at the same time, um, and interesting. That's that's the way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I was just I didn't I didn't I was just was trying to put two and two together. Now this is the nine eleven episode of Born the Battle. Uh, last year we had John Baxter, who is the flight surgeon for the Secretary of Defense who was in uniform on 9-11 and told a very harrowing tale uh, of leading recovery and evacuation teams before any helicopters landed or any AMTs showed up. Um, but you were also at the Pentagon on that on that very same day, working with first, first responders as well. Uh, Tony, can you run through that entire day for me? Uh, yes, I, I can. And um, it, it helps to have a little setup so that we understand what was happening prior to the attack on the Pentagon. Yes, sir. At that time. So we had uh, my team, my government team, had just had the good fortune to be awarded a large federal contract for all the DOD mobility mobility devices um, in Washington, D.C., with the Defense Telecommunications Services, Washington, D.C. And, and that's what brought us to the Pentagon on 9-11. And, and the, the day started. I remember the way the day started. It was a it was a beautiful break. Tuesday morning um, in the Washington, D.C. area. We just returned um, from Labor Day vacations and we were heading into our, our senior staff meeting. Uh, I I have to say that while we were a cellular carrier, we also were a distributor, distributor for a little Mobitex device, a RIM Mobitex device. It's a little it's a little pager. Uh, they don't make them any gotcha. they don't make them anymore, but they played a critical role. Uh, for us during that day. Back, 
Back in the day, pages were pretty important. <laughs> yes, that's right. Everybody had one. As we went into the meeting, some of them received a, a, a message on their pager that a, that a plane had struck the World Trade Center. This was a, a 9 a.m. meeting. Um, so we weren't sure what was what was going on. We now know that that was the North Tower, American Airlines Flight 11. In about 10 minutes, the, the same gen- gentleman interrupted us again to let us know that uh, he announced that another plane had struck the World Trade Center, um, as we know now, as South Tower, um, United Airlines Flight 75. And 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 while we impatiently waited for uh, our meeting to end, same gentleman announced that another plane um, had struck the Pentagon, American Airlines Flight 70. So the, the energy in the room was was was. Um, pen up at that time and it just swirled into action after that so where, where were you at that time were you not were you not in the pentagon no i was in it was in our we were in our offices uh our corporate offices in maryland um okay so, and that's where our that's where we had our operations and our and where our leadership was um so um as we swirled into action um so did everybody else and everyone at that moment in time in a panic Washington, D.C. area press the send button on their cell phone at the same time. And then our network blocked and communication around that area was severely impacted. Our network if it are not like today's networks, mobility networks. Um, it was not designed for the level of usage we saw on that day whatsoever. I, I think if I remember correctly, this was an office building, like a five-store office building. Um, and um, our switch was either still in the basement of that building or had just moved out. But our programming room was in an office building in in, uh, in Maryland. Wow. Uh, so while we couldn't communicate with – while we could communicate with each other – with our Mobitex pagers, our customers couldn't. Uh, and our network team really struggled to try to, to get our network back into action. Um, um, but it was, there's not much they can do when everyone is heading out of the city at the same time, we're trying to add circuits. So it was a very difficult day for our, our network team. When our sales teams could get calls, they were fielding massive complaints. Um, so the only in a crisis like this for me, um, my army training took over, yeah. and I had to get accountability of my people, make sure they had their equipment, uh, make sure everyone was mission and capable. And we had two employees that were supposed to be at the Pentagon that morning for a meeting um, with DTSW, and um, we had we confirmed later that their meeting had been canceled. And thank goodness that they were not there. Um, there's a million stories like that, and, and that one is ours. That was that was something close that that it was a close call that I think everyone was thankful. Yeah, absolutely. Shortly afterwards, um, shortly after that, uh, my federal team started receiving requests from the agency who was maintaining the perimeter security around the Pentagon. This was later in the in that morning that they needed a um, hundred or X number of hundred cell phones by three p.m. that day to help the rescue and recovery effort at the Pentagon. And what was happening is that those at the scene um, were having difficulty communicating with the other agencies. Arlington Fire couldn't communicate with Pentagon Protection Forces, um, and this agency needed to communicate with who was coming in and outside the perimeter so they could control the access. So they were they needed help and they couldn't talk. You know, it's funny, John, John, John went, during his evacuation, talked about that, talked about the difficulties in communication. Yes, right. And yeah. we were on the other end trying to f- facilitate solutions. Um, hmm. So um, we pulled together an improvised assembly line in our basement um, with the remaining people who were in the building. Uh, our heroic volunteers, anyone who could program or activate a phone, were hard at it down in the basement, signing numbers. And we used phones to enter all the codes that needed to go in for it. Um, and I remember after we had the numbers the devices program. And uh, I remember saying to uh, words of encouragement to imparting thanks to members who were going to drive the devices down to the Pentagon and deliver them. Uh, and, and then later on, another manager and I would relieve them um, 
and remain there overnight, remain at the Pentagon overnight. Um, yeah. Those that were in the room, I think, um, was I think everybody wanted to to, to uh, it felt like they wanted to do something that day, and I think everybody in DC and in the, across the country, um, we just yeah. wanted to do something to help. And I and I'm so proud of of that team when I when we looked around and we could say on 9/11 we did do something to directly support our most valued DOD customers when they needed help. Um, yeah. Did you did you have a point of contact at the Pentagon, or were, were you guys just running down to sell with cell phones, going, "Here's some cell phones"? I'll tell um, you in a second. I'm coming to that. Yeah, it's a great, okay. great question. Okay. A great question. Okay. Um, yeah. So the first reports we were getting back were not were not hopeful. Um, uh, uh, and yeah. as my manager and I drove down um, a little later, um, we could we could still see the the smoke burning from the Pentagon. Um, we, we linked up with the, uh, our POC down there, the, the agent in charge and were, and we set, we were set up on a, a small card table, uh, about 200 feet directly in front of the crash site. Wow. And we watched the end, the events unfold around us. And the, the first thing I remember, uh, going down there when I arrived was the acrid smell of burnt jet fuel. Uh, I wasn't ready for it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what I thought to myself at the time. Well, what did you expect? What did you expect this would be like? Um, and then the, we 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 uh, you know somberly started our task of recording um, the first responders who approached our table and said they needed a, a device, and we recorded their name and phone number so that others could know they needed to get a hold of them. They could reach them, and and. Um, we remained on site overnight as, as we grimly learned that the rescue effort had turned into a recovery effort. And, and that was a, that was a really sad moment. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they, uh, it was a sad moment, um, for, uh, for, our, for, for us as well, a former executive, uh, and another, um, company that I, that I had worked with one of the finest gentlemen I know I had known at the time and now, um, was on flight 77. Um, so we, we watched the events unfold directly in front of us at the cat crash site, um, Arlington fire. So this is, this is, it's dark now. It's nighttime. It's Arlington fires stacking wood planks, um, crisscrossing up to shore up the concrete and steel that had collapsed from the building. When the, when the plane attacked the Pentagon, it's get it across the ground, uh, at, at ground level and it just wiped out the supports underneath the building and the higher floors were at risk of collapsing them. So they sent people inside while we were there, but they had to shore up the building first to make sure that they were no further, no one further would be injured or harmed. Yeah. Um, and that those that went inside, it, it, it was a horrific, horrific sight. Um, soon after that, um, uh, mortuary services began their, began their grim task. I, re I remember seeing the flashing first responder lights everywhere. Vehicles moved back and forth into different positions. There were, there were lots of, there were not a lot of people in the area at that point. It was, it was quiet. Uh, people were talking, no one was shouting. It was, it was somber. Um, and when we spoke, it was in subdued tones. And I asked the, uh, the agent in charge who sponsored us, our point of contact. I asked him, who's, who's in charge here? Um, as I'm seeing all this hustle and bustle. And right now he was, in, he's, he was a former army ranger. And he said, right now, no one is. Everyone is just doing what they're supposed to do. Fire, rescue, police, Pentagon, security forces, military, police. Uh, and then, of course, sadly, mortuary services. Yeah. But they couldn't communicate when we saw that. That was our role for that night. We, we, and for the next three weeks, we uh, handed out devices to first responders, incident commanders, and DOD so they could communicate. And, and at, at this point, um, it, it, at this point in that, in, in the night, um, uh, and I, I think it was around 2 a.m. Someone lowered an American flag from the top of the Pentagon. I my memory is was it, it just appeared. I got the impression that this is my impression that someone who worked at the Pentagon 
knew where the closest flag was, ordered it to be retrieved and ordered it lowered over um, over what was now sacred ground. Uh, and I, I presume they worked with Arlington Fire to hang it. Um, it's just, this is just happening. And later on in the morning, the later on the, the, the small flag was replaced with a much larger flag um, than you see now in the very famous picture of the firefighters hanging it off the side of the Pentagon. Yeah. Many, as many people, not many people know, there were actually two, and, and the. And no, I had no idea. I, I felt like at the time it was a sign of respect for our fallen and an emblem for our resolve to carry on as a country together. And, it, and at the end of the day, that's what our flag stands for. And, and that's why I volunteered for the Carry the Load. And that's why the Carry the Flag program is so special to me because it teaches our young people about the symbolism of the flag that it stands for and what it represents. And and I hope maybe a call to others that want to be part of the Carry the Flag program. Um, it's a chance for our, our youth um, to meet their local heroes. And, and I'm not a hero, but I know I that think, there are. I think folks, some folks would beg to differ on whether you're a hero or not. Um, you know, you stepped up in a, in a time of need. I, you, you know, Tony, you speak about a very important time in American history, you know, and I think it's especially poignant for the times that we're living in today. You know, everyone talks about anybody who lived through that time. They talk about how tragic September 11th was, but how unifying September 12th was in the same sense. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Everything was thrown out the window at that, at that, at that time, you know, uh, nothing else mattered except for each other and taking care of one another. And I think it's important to never forget that feeling when we're going through more trying times. Yeah. I, I, and I agree with you. Um, you know, that, that day uh, and that night we knew our lives would be changed forever. Nothing would be the same. We would never fly the same. We were going to war nothing would be the same. And the way we got through it was by sticking together, working together, communicating, and, and be proud of who we are as a country. And, and I think, that, again, that's emblematic of what our flag, flag represents. Absolutely. The flag means something to you because of, of the context that you saw it in. You know, and I, th I think a lot of people don't see that today. Well, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a good point. And it's a, really, it's a really good point about context. It's con context is image. Your brain tells you something, you feel something, and that image generates those kind of reactions. I think that's what it's supposed to do. It is a freedom of speech we all fought so that people can express their freedom of speech with that flag. Yeah. We fought, and our, and our country has defended that privilege. That's an image that some people may or may not uh, recognize when they see it on the flag, but it's truth, and, it's, and it bears... It bears the symbolic reference of the colors of the flag. Um, it, and, and I will also say, too, one of the schools that I went to, one of the, one of the greatest schools I went to, um, um, they taught us about the flag. And, and they said, one of the instructors said, I wear my flag over my heart and no one can touch that. It's supposed to be a unifier. It's supposed to be the thing that says no matter what, we're all this. Yes, this is what, and we all need to recognize that. That's right. This is what we yeah. represent. After nine, after nine eleven, we, we our network team was faced with another challenge, which is improving coverage inside the crash site. So we had to deploy a cell site on wheels on top of bringing the net the network back up. We had to deploy a cell site on wheels at the Pentagon after nine eleven. And I if and I don't remember exactly how they managed to do this. Um, but they did it by getting a crane or a cherry picker or something and hung an antenna off of it. And then that's how coverage is off the, off the Pentagon. No, into outside the Pentagon into it. It shot the, the it was a directional antenna. They entered right at the Pentagon from this crane. Um, it was, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen, but it was emblem. Again, it was, a, it was just a sign of that entrepreneurial spirit, that can do spirit on that day that we're not going to let anything hold us back. And, and as a result of the problems that we had uh, on after 9-11, 
uh, challenges to 9-11 commission um, met and determined that that uh, the, the country needed um, a, a uh, because of interoperability um, no lack of interoperability the country needed a, a first responder network and that's when FirstNet uh, was created uh, and it was it's headquartered in Western Virginia um, and the authority the the FirstNet authority was created uh, at a, with a public private partnership with AT&T in March okay. in March 20th 2017 um, we built our uh, to build out the FirstNet network Okay, so this was uh, you. So basically, after nine eleven, there was no uh, no need to have a a first responder network. So if everything else goes down, at least everybody else can talk within it, different agencies. Different. Yeah, our, our our nation's first responders have will have priority and preemption for voice and data calling. They'll be able to transmit and receive uh, their emergency data on a low band frequency that's dedicated to our first responders. Their cars or calls. Will have the best ability to go, have the ability to go through, and they won't be blocked. Um, they'll be put ahead of our uh, normal traffic. That's outstanding, and that's nationwide across the country. Uh, it's a nationwide nationwide network. network. I think it's global. I mean, we global support too for our territories. Our how so? Like, say a, a local fire department in a local small hometown. They're they're all part of this network. How how do and if not, how do they become part of the network? Uh, it's there's different ways. Your agency can is is um, able to apply, uh, and, and it's all about an application. Um, so that it's it's re- review board, um, but your agency can apply if they're paying for the service. Uh, uh, if it's if it's a subscriber that wants to pay for the service, they can apply too. For example, a volunteer fireman, they can apply. Um, and it can go all the way down to who you would find um, responding to an incident in a, a, a small city. Uh, you know, maybe a traffic accident, knock down a telephone pole, there's live power lines, and in the middle of the night, the local power company needs to respond. They can be part of, if they qualify, um, that was considered a first responder. Uh, so it, it's not, it's always. Um, a matter of identifying the user and the need um, to determine uh, their priority um, on the FirstNet network, and they have, and again they have to go through an application process. Very good, very good. Okay, uh, put a, send me the link when we're done with this conversation, so I can put it in the blog. Uh, when we put it on blog blogs.be.gov, like the application, you know, how to submit and all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, uh, thank you for that. Cool. I appreciate your great message. Ab- I'm very um, I'm fortunate to be able to get it out. It's important, you know. It's it's incredibly important. Um, it to to, to be able to, to prioritize first responders in a, in a national crisis and to have that 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 network yeah. there. That's it's incredibly important. I think more more first responders, you know, from all all walks, you know, all over the country should know. So absolutely, no problem. It's just an amazing solution and, and, and sorely needed um, for our our first responders and and. Uh, for DOD, military, um, civilian agencies as well. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Now, shortly after you started deploying, um, now were these, was your role similar to what you were doing with Singular or did you start getting into with your team or, or did you have a different role on your team? No, my, my, uh, you know, my, my job on a team is, is, is specified. Every ODA has, um, they have a team leader, um, have a weapons sergeant, senior weapons sergeant, senior weapons sergeant, uh, communications, uh, senior communications, junior communications. That was my job. Uh, engineer sergeant, um, and then medical. Uh, and and um, there is a junior and a senior, and it's a 12 man team. And, and the, the primary mission, really the reason that attracted me to special forces with unconventional warfare. Again, kind of going around the swamps and the rivers and, and the, on the Potomac, that just appealed to me. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to live in the forest and, and help people. And if we needed a fight, then we would fight. And it was kind of like the Peace Corps with guns. And that, <laughs> yeah. it's a great mission. And, and if yeah. you're very independent, you are you deploy with little to no support and you're sustainable for a very, very long time. Um, and that takes a certain breed of person to be able to operate 
uh, in an environment like that. And I liked that type of person. I liked being around those type of, of, of soldiers, um, pe people that are just one of a kind, super achievers uh, in many aspects of their lives and what they're passionate about. And, and these soldiers were passionate about serving our country and about serving it the best way they, they knew how. It sounds like you miss it, Tony, a little bit. I, I do. I miss, I miss some of it. Um, I think, though, that there is a time when we all know it's, you need to hang up your spurs. And I, I think I hit that time. <laughs> and I kinda, you kind of know. You just kind of know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, and I, I always tell people you, you'll, you'll always know, but it's, you know, whether you do four years, whether you do 30 years, you'll always know, but you, you also need to know what the next step is going to be. You also need to continuously prepare for that. How, 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 how are you, how are you able to prepare for you, for your exit? I would, that's a good segue too. It's a really good question. And I would say, um, well, two things. One, um, um, I came off deployment back into the civilian life a lot. So the transition yeah. out of the military to civilian was, to me, was old hat. Um, yeah. Um, I feel like reservists kind of already had that down compared to attack duty. But yeah, <laughs> I, do, I do too, to a degree. And they bring a lot to the battle too. They bring their civilian job to the battle. So I brought, uh, you know, yeah. a lot of us brought the, uh, you know, the, the security backgrounds, the contracting background, but the medical backgrounds, not uncommon for a, yeah. For, for a uh, uh, one of our medics to be a trauma PA, um, and then Roger. and then be on an ODA. Um, yeah, and you had and you had an extensive communications background. Yeah, so that, the power of know. AT and T with me wherever I went. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, but I wanted to say though that it's part of that is also the 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 duty and the honor of 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 what our our, our, VA, our partners in the VA do for veterans. And um, that's also a, a recovery step or, a, or a, a transition step, but that's also part of, you know, after multiple tours for our, our soldiers, um, sometimes you, you, you can take advantage, you should take advantage of the VA programs. My experiences with the VA have been, have been fantastic. Uh, VA health, VA telehealth. That's good to hear. Um, I've had very good experiences. And um, I think part of that, process of coming out um, of the military after to so many deployments, many more than I've ever done. Um, uh, multiple deployments for yourself, um, plus 9-11. Uh, in what ways has the VA helped you? Uh, it's, it's good to be able to talk to a medical professional who knows how to speak to soldiers. Uh, and I'm saying soldiers because I'm a soldier, but sure. sailors, airmen. Um, yeah. Um, Marines. Marines. Thank you. <laughs> Marines. I love the Marines. I, I will say you asked me who my best friends were. Every single one of them was a Marine, um, including some of the members of my team. But um, the uh, um, I think having that communication level, being able to understand if if I talk about a I'm talking to another veteran about a, a type of antenna, a jungle, jungle two nine or two. He'll, we can relate. We can talk. We, he'll know what that that is. And 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 there's certain things that you, you you. It's not, not that it's not proper, but there's just certain things that some veterans don't want to talk about. And the, the VA has that down. There's they just they're very they know what to say and what not to say. And I think it's I think it's a great organization. Because they offer professional services and they do it in a way that is familiar to veterans, in my opinion. Gotcha. If you were to if you were to suggest one service at the VA that you've taken advantage of uh, from the VA, what would it be? Um, their behavioral their behavioral um, services and uh, some of the services that are associated to some of the trauma that soldiers. I I felt like uh, the VA had cutting edge cutting edge solutions and i felt that they were on the cutting edge of of, uh, of mental health at that time and I, and I don't believe anything's changed since um very good so tony you know it's 2020 
What is one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? Best lessons I learned. Um, the best lesson I learned was in a school that I failed. The lesson I learned was, and I, it's just at a time in my leadership where I felt like I might have been micromanaging or I felt like maybe soldiers felt like I was kind of in their world a little bit too much. Um, but having come out of job master school, I realized that my job is to make sure that this person put that parachute on right. And when they go out of that airplane, it's going to work. And that was my job. And to me, yeah. that was that was pretty much the the, the role that that uh, I look at for any leader to to convey. Um, going to take care of you so that you can do your mission. And that's that's basic NCO NCO Academy. Take care of your take care of your personnel. Accomplish your mission. Team first. Mission always. Team first, mission always. I take that with me. Every ever since I learned it, I take it, I carry it with me every day, and that's my leadership style in whatever I do. Very good, very good. Um, yeah, I know we've already talked about one. Um, is there a veteran nonprofit or an or an individual whom you've worked with or had experience with whom you'd like to mention? You know. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll, there's two. So the AT&T Veterans Organization, you don't need to work for AT&T uh, to be a member. The goal of the organization is, is to make, uh, is to raise veteran awareness uh, within AT&T. So it helps, uh, helps cross that military civilian divide within your organization. Yes. That's what it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Very good. Um, Tony, we've covered a lot of ground, man. Um, is there anything else that, that I might have missed? that you think is important to share with our listeners? I would say surround yourself with the most positive, um, healthy lifestyle, people, environments that you possibly can. And healthy extends physical, mental, spiritual. I want to thank Tony for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. For more information on Tony, you can find his bio at carrytheload.org and go to their ambassadors page. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week was selected from our Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our team honors a veteran on blogs.va.gov and on all of our social media platforms. You can nominate a veteran yourself by sending an email to newmedia at va.gov. Rick Rescorla. I hope I'm saying that right, was born in Hale, Cornwall, United Kingdom, on May 27th, 1939. In 1957, he joined the British Army, where he trained as a paratrooper before serving with an intelligence unit in Cyprus from 1957 to 1960. From 1960 to 1963, he Shortly after, Rick moved to Brooklyn, New York, and in 1963, he joined the U.S. Army and attended basic training at Fort Dix, then Officer Candidate School, and then airborne training at Fort Benning. He was assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, 1st Cavalry Division. Rick was then deployed to Vietnam, where he fought in the 1965 Battle of Ia Drang. Rick collaborated with Hal Moore, a fellow soldier, to write a book about the Vietnam War titled We Were Soldiers Once and Young, which was published in 1992. The book inspired the 2002 film We Were Soldiers and starred Mel Gibson in the role of Hal Moore. Rescorla would later say that he wouldn't see it. All the heroes are dead, he said. After Vietnam, Rick went to college at the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma City University School of Law. He received degrees in creative writing, English, and law. He went on to teach criminal justice at the University of South Carolina. Rick left teaching for a job in corporate security at the World Trade Center in New York City in 1985. That company later became Morgan Stanley. Rick's office was on the 44th floor of the South Tower 
and after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Rick ran surprise fire drills for Morgan Stanley to empower employees to respond safely in the event of an emergency. Tragically, Rick died on September 11, 2001. When the Port Authority made an announcement over the PA system, instructing employees to stay at their desks, right after American Airlines Flight 11 struck the North Tower, Rick began evacuating his co-workers. They were in the stairwell when United Flight Airlines 175 hit their tower. Rick began singing Cornish songs from his youth, which he'd done in Vietnam with his fellow soldiers, to calm the crowd. After a successful evacuation of more than 2,500 employees, Rick re-entered the building. He was last seen on the 10th floor, heading upward, just before the tower collapsed. His remains have never been found. There's a statue of Rick at Fort Benning, Georgia, and a memorial in Cornwall. He is memorialized at the National 9-11 Memorial, South Pool, Panel, Sierra-46. An award was also created in his memory, the Rick Riscola National Award by the Department of Homeland Security. In addition, he was posthumously inducted into the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame. Rick's personal awards include the Silver Star, the Purple Heart, and just last year, for his actions on September 11th, President Trump posthumously awarded Rick the Presidential Citizens Medal for his sacrifice. Army veteran Rick Rescorla. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Rally Point, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with a blue check mark. And as always, the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. And we'll see you right here next week. Thanks for listening. If, if someone has listened through the entire podcast and they go to the final music and, and if they, you know, we kind of like to reward them sometimes with a, with a little extra bonus story, you know, like almost like the bonus section of a DVD or a Blu-ray. Um, do you have any, any story that you'd like to add to the, after the show show um, that would be on your episode? It could be in military, it could be out of military, it could be funny. I got something for you. I don't know how much of this you can use, but it's it's an SF story. Um, okay. So we were um, something a unit, um, a NATO unit, lost a soldier close to where our fire base was. So close meaning within within a hundred miles, and um, no one wanted to do this. It just—it was too complex, too many moving parts, too far away, obscure objectives, and it just, just didn't look like it was going to work. So, sure. And somehow it landed. It was given to us, and we were just. 
and <laughs> voluntold. Yes, and um, so we did it, and we just kind of okay, fine. This is going to be a camping trip because nothing's going to work, but that's just fine. It was probably one of the most successful, coordinated uh, results generating missions that we'd done to that time, and it sent a message to to the people in that valley a good message and um and for a number of days we were there we went one place the the mission was very simple everywhere and nowhere where we were one day we were someplace different that night and then anywhere the next day do something different that night we finally got to the end of this valley and uh, the Taliban elders, we bought a goat, we were going to celebrate, we had probably, at this point, we probably had around, maybe, a, well, a lot of people um, were uh, Afghan security forces. We bought a goat, we are going to have a big, we are going to have a big goat stew, cold, uh, we had a big fire, and they, they um, butchered the goat and made the best stew I've ever had in my life, with naan in the country, the bread that they used to serve there, and we were dipping mm. it a big fire, feeling good, um, and... Um, the people that prepared to go for us are now sitting across the fire from us, eating it, eating dinner with us, and this is fine. And we're looking at them like, these are the Taliban elders of this village. <laughs> They're looking across the fire with, at us as we're looking at them with hatred in our eyes. And the message was, we dine tonight, tomorrow we fight. And I thought... That was the coolest culture I've ever seen. And that was a practical experience of what that culture is like, um, and how they respect um, how they respect uh, what we were doing over there at that time. Interesting. So they just they just came to the to the to the so you sat down. completed your mission. And they sat, they were like, all right, cool. We, yeah, they, Congrats. Exactly. <laughs> we, we, I don't know how they got in. I, well, we had in, in, you know, we coordinated with the, with, we had people that could go out and get things for us and we paid for it. And that's how we got the boat and they had to prepare it. Yeah. It's, it's not, not easy to do that in these villages. Wow. That's, that's quite a story. It was pretty incredible. I will tell you, 